Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. listening to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Hey, Scott. Hey, Scott. Hello, hello. <laughs> How are you? Doing well. Um, it's been a, uh, a kind of hectic few months in crypto, but uh, it's been amazing just to sort of slowly get uh, back to uh, back to reality here. Yeah, everybody needs like a break, I think. We, um, we need a bear market so we can all recover. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, I, I ultimately think that there was, you know, we can get into it, the, a sort of a different um, uh, almost energy in, in that market, a camaraderie in that market. Um, there's certainly a camaraderie now too, but um, it's super interesting just to see um, the difference between those two energies. Yeah, for sure. And where are you joining us from, if you don't mind us asking? I'm in Toronto. And in many ways, that's sort of the, I don't know, like, not birthplace of Ethereum, but kind of birthplace of Ethereum. Like, um, Vitalik, you know, kind of started off here. Um, and it's kind of how we got into the space in the first place. Um, but yeah, Toronto is sort of where I've called home actually my whole life. And I've traveled around a little bit here and there. But um Glad to be sort of actually in one place uh, for a while, uh, which is a weird thing to say in the context of the last couple of years, but it's just been nice to sort of get to know uh, my own city. I don't think that's weird at all. Matt and I toured so much that then when it when it's time to spend time in one spot, we actually enjoyed it at first. <laughs> and, then at we, first yeah. and then we got <laughs> got a little bit old. It's also wild too how many Canadians we have had on the podcast recently. Yeah, we just recently spoke to Death Beef, who's also in Toronto, and Trent. I mean, he's not. Well, Trent is a Canadian, but he's he's a he's a Berliner uh, Canadian. Yeah, and a bunch of people over in Vancouver too. This is like, yeah, this is turning into a theme. <laughs> actually, it's funny how many people actually. It, Toronto is this sort of um, hub, but like Canada in general um, is just this kind of weird, um, almost nexus of um, uh, now like global expats. Uh, so you've got like Berlin. There's a whole community there. Um, I actually listened to the episode with Sarah Friend. Um, she's, mm-hmm. you know, yep. obviously doing her own sort of travels. Um, and I think that it's just super interesting um, to go to all these conferences around the world. And you're like, wait, oh, you're from like my city, actually. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's kind of great. It's, it's really lovely. There's also a very lovely nature to a lot of Canadians. <laughs> it definitely, it definitely suits, suits our speed. Um, cool. Well, I, I wonder, you know, would you mind introducing yourselves, uh, yourselves? Um, <laughs> not making any assumptions. Uh, would you mind introducing your, <laughs> yourself or yourselves? Yes, yeah. your multifaceted uh, self. Uh, for our listeners, please. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's actually, it's a great way to phrase it. I do think everyone kind of has multiple selves and we all sort of have <laughs> different 
uh, like personas that we we take on in different contexts. But um, yeah, my name is Scott. I, I've started sort of in the space in 2016. I, I started working on actually DAO frameworks in that time frame, which at the time was not really of interest to many people, um, especially then the DAO hack happened and uh, no one really wanted to talk about DAOs for a while after that. But <laughs> yep. um, I sort of really went full time and just head first into the space in 2017, 2018, when I started uh, Gitcoin with uh, Kevin Iwaki and Vivek Singh. And that was kind of my introduction to the broader global community of crypto, uh, sort of beyond my own backyard. And so um, it's it's been a kind of crazy journey of trying to figure out, well, how do we actually you know, build and fund these public goods that we're all using. We all talk about like the open source software we use. Well, how do we, you know, really sustain that? So um, that's sort of my my uh, origin story in the space in some ways. Um, before that was kind of boring, so I can kind of skip it. I was doing a lot of machine <laughs> learning work um, in, you know, the finance TM sort of sector. And um, it was actually that that got me looking at these meetups in Toronto to mm -hmm. start figuring out like, well, what else is there? Like what other... Things can I actually explore beyond like this being my life for the next like 20, 30 plus years? And yeah, that was it. I never looked back. Amazing. Wonderful. And would you mind, we're going to ask you to like define a lot of things over the course of this conversation, but would you mind giving maybe a high level overview of what Gitcoin is, please? That That is definitely, yeah, one of those things that is, it's evolved over the years, I will say. And so it's actually funny. We... Kevin and I were both working on similar ideas at the same time. And the Kevin's take on it was really a bounties platform at the beginning. And at the time, the idea of users in Web3 was like a novelty. It was very un, kind of like unfamiliar to people that there might be real people using this <laughs> tech. Um, and so it kind of started off, you know, with this user testing around, well, how do we get new contributors into open source projects? How do we start kind of people on the path to becoming maintainers? And eventually we realized, well, that's great, but we ultimately want there to be more maintainers. So how do we actually sustain them? And that's what sort of started Gitcoin Grants, which is this quadratic funding platform. For those who aren't familiar, I'll, I'll give a brief overview. Basically, you have some matching pool. You have individual donors who take um, a two-week period to kind of signal their support in donations to a given set of projects. And then the matching pool is kind of democratically distributed according to the number of people who signal their interest to a given project. And that was actually an idea that came from Vitalik, Glenn Whale, and Zoe Hitzig in 2018. And so as soon as we sort of stumbled across that idea and started talking more with the uh, sort of writers of the paper, we realized, wait, like, this is, like, bounties are great, but this is really, like, what we need is this sort of sustainable model for, like, community distribution of funds to maintainers themselves. So that was really what got us started on, like, the current trajectory and path we're on now. Um, and that's kind of where we've uh, spent a lot of our time over the last uh, couple of years. Very cool. Wonderful. One thing that I think could maybe be helpful for people who are less familiar with this area is if you could just kind of explain what open source is and maybe some of the history of open source, because I feel like it is such an integral part of all of our technical lives. And a lot of people don't know that story. I know that's a, a big ask, but if you could just give us an overview. I think it's really worth establishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that open source has this almost um, sort of, it feels almost like a, a kind of dream to a lot of people because they didn't grow up with the idea, like especially now with the current generation, like they didn't grow up without the internet. They didn't grow up without 
open source software. But, mm-hmm. you know, even in the 90s, like that idea was still pretty nascent. Um, a lot of companies um, famously were um, advocating pretty staunchly against open source software. And it, it was really a movement around like the idea that we should have some kind of freedom or flexibility around how we um, build software together just in any like kind of online context. We should all know what the source code is. We should all be able to like use that source code in any way we see fit for our own purposes. So long as like in some cases, some people prefer that it's not for commercial use. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there should be some way to um, all collaborate together for anyone to kind of join an open source software project. Um, this is something that was talked about in the cathedral and the bazaar um, as far back as like the eighties, but that there should be almost like a communal aspect of how you build this and how you start to set the roadmap for these projects or for these pieces of software. And that's because, you know, ultimately these are, if if these are open standards, open tools we're all using, we need to be also like thinking about them, you know, together rather than silos. So it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people in Web3 naturally understand this concept, um, but it's not something that's always been the case. And it's just kind of like nice that everyone in Web3 came from a background in a lot of cases, I think in most cases, I would say, where open source software was the norm. So that's like, you know, very high level. There's like a whole history of open source. I would, I would actually really recommend people um, in particular read Nadia Eggball's work on open source. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a book called Working in Public and she's also got um, this great Ford Foundation paper um, called Roads and Bridges, The Unseen Labor Behind Our Digital Infrastructure. And it really goes into some more of the history on, on those points. What would you say are the biggest open source projects, like the most popular, widely used, or, or that, that things are built upon that people kind of use in their daily lives? I think it's a lot of tooling that's in the background. It's a lot of tooling that people don't mm-hmm. see. So um, a great example, actually, even as far back as like 2014 was OpenSSL. So um, people didn't really know what that was until this thing called Heartbleed happened. Um, Heartbleed was a kind of global problem for um, pretty much anyone that was using the web. Uh, it caused, I think, like, I think they estimated like seven, something in the range of like tens of billions of dollars of like economic damage, which I, of course, like, you know, for, for whatever reason, we use that as like the measure of all things that are uh, <laughs> related to um, how we live, which is has its own problems. But that, um, that event kind of made people realize, well, there's all this stuff in the background that we rely on now that, you know, um, can just like in an instant be um, damaged or be um, held hostage by a set of, you know, bad actors who happen to be able to insert a vulnerability into a certain piece of code. Um, that was one big one that just like woke people up to the idea that open source software is important. I would also say just like pretty much every um, library that people use in the JavaScript ecosystem. So like anything that we're even the, the tooling we're using now, like definitely uses open source software. Um, things like Babel, things like uh, React on the front end. Um, I think that the the scope is almost so big. Like I, I think there's probably maybe less than one percent of all software projects at this point actually don't use open source software. So um, wow. it's almost easier to answer like what isn't you know, relying on all this stuff that like is being put out into the open for everyone to to use. Yeah, and. And so also earlier you had mentioned um, you used the word maintainer. 
I'd also love for you to clarify what a maintainer is and uh, and why maintainers are so important because that will lead us into where I want to take this conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's the maintainer is really the key person in charge of or people in charge of uh, managing issues, managing um, the sort of prioritization of the project. Often they're like the main coder of the project, the main person making commits, um, getting involved day to day with the operations of the project. If you think of, um, you know, it's kind of a, uh, uh, anachronistic way to think about it, but like if you think of a DAO, like they're kind of like the people running the core parts of a DAO in Web3. There's always someone that needs to be mm-hmm. the operations person that needs to be making sure everything's running on time. And the reason that's so critical is because, um, especially when projects get like to a certain scale, um, without that, the coordination just falls apart. Um, Kevin talks about this a lot, like in Web3, it's all coordination. Um, well, I mean, even before that, like in, in open source, like it was all coordination as well. And I think um, that's really the core part that maintainers, um, you know, kind of shoulder. Um, and I think it's really um, often um, underestimated just how much work that takes. Yeah, quiet, quiet work. I mean, definitely, we are certainly like on the more novice end of some of this stuff, but we definitely have friends, particularly in Berlin who play a, uh, a very pivotal role. And it's always telling going into a very technical room. Like, uh, I mean, this not in a negative way, like the kind of status afforded to people who are, mm-hmm. who are maintaining, uh, maintaining and working on the, these open, open libraries and, and open software. It's, it, it's something that like, it I was- think that's worth unpacking a little bit because mm-hmm. the motivation behind it is a really interesting thing to understand further, mm-hmm. you know, because people are essentially volunteering their time or a kind of a, a reduced cost, uh, you know, reduced market price of their time. So what do you find is the kind of primary motivator for people to work on open source? I think a lot of the time it's just a sense of almost, it starts off usually as just a passion project. It's just like, I want to see this cool tool in the world. I'll build it. I'll see what happens. And it then kind of becomes a, an obligation of sorts. I mean, they've made this thing. Um, it's not very long after that actually people almost accidentally become maintainers in the sense that people start asking them for new features, people start making requests, um, and you end up with this huge yeah, like laundry list of, well, I kind of just put this out in the world because I thought like it would be cool. And I, maybe I was, you know, maybe the maintainer was using it for their own purposes, for their own projects. And then it becomes just, it, it snowballs out of control. And that's one of the reasons it's so difficult um, to sort of, be a maintainer in a lot of cases because it's something that most people were just kind of doing in their spare time that happened to, you know, now require like, you know, maybe even like 40 plus hours a week to really uh, keep going. And that's something that um, creates a lot of those challenges. That's actually in the case of OpenSSL, why um, Heartbleed happened was because the maintainer was kind of just spending, you know, part-time while working their full-time job, working on this thing. They weren't really getting much money for it. So they, they couldn't afford to do it full-time. Um, and that was just, you know, where they started um, running into some of these issues where they might've missed a bug or missed a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, like, I think it's mostly passion projects that kind of spiral. Um, there are people that kind of become career maintainers. Um, but I think, most of the time, those are people who are doing that as part of a, a larger company um, and the company pays for them to be doing this part time, which 
is its own topic for sure. Like that's like kind of one of the problems is that, you know, there's this capture element of open source being kind of run by or maintained by mostly um, these engineers at these big fan companies that um, have their own sort of sets of um, stakeholders and, and agendas. What would you say, kind of presaging a conversation about Gitcoin and what Gitcoin offers, what would you say are some of the challenges posed to open source culture uh, uh, over the past few years? So, for example, for those who don't know, GitHub was acquired, right? That there's one of the kind of the kind of uh, major repositories for open code in the world was acquired by a big fish. What would you say is is kind of the state of open source in the image of kind of nineties two thousands open source culture beyond maybe this issue of maintainers perhaps being undercompensated or or the maintenance of code being quite difficult to track in some cases uh, and for context another thing to add which is only just building on what you said but in many cases you know, people are putting this code out in the world and then people are building businesses on top of that code, right? So, so it's no wonder that uh, the, the, the laundry list of, of tasks and the kind of the essential nature of maintaining that foundational code is really critical. Absolutely, yeah. I think that the, the major challenges right now are like, you know, and, and in the context of Gitcoin, like how do we actually bring back Funding, bring back the sort of role of maintainership. Like, what does that look like in a network sort of like um, context versus in this sort of siloed, you know, one maintainer working for whatever fan company maintaining this piece of code? To me, um, that looks like actually a lot of what we're doing in Web3 more broadly. I wouldn't even say just um, what we're doing with Bitcoin, but it looks like, you know, having these sorts of micro economies online that can like, create this um, almost digital city, right? Like, I mean, people refer to Ethereum sometimes as like an infinite garden or a digital city. And I think that that, those framings really capture the idea of how we actually, you know, treat it almost like part of our, part of our like kind of infrastructure um, and part of our sort of the tapestry of our daily lives. Like we're, we can't think of, um, you know, the way we maintain these things as just something that we do on the side while we work for whatever traditional system. I think we need to start thinking about like how we actually basically like just port over the social cultural ideas from open source and embed an economic layer directly into um, that sort of existing culture, that existing city. Um, Because a city without like a currency um, Mm. isn't, isn't really fully a city. so it's kind of a tangential answer, but like I think that's a really important kind of context shift that's happened with Web3 and something that we're trying to facilitate with this conversation around like digital public goods in the context of Bitcoin. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be something that happens overnight, but even in Web2, I do think people are starting to wake up to the idea that um, a lot of these um, kind of uh, you know, sponsorship models that we've relied on for these big pieces of software being maintained um, just don't really, really work. Well, I just keep thinking about this meme that I came across on Twitter not long ago, and I'm sure you're familiar with this because this is so in your camp, but it's like this kind of Jenga um 
building blocks and it says, you know, all modern digital infrastructure at the top. And then there's this tiny little peg holding everything up that says a project some random person in Nebraska has been thanklessly (laughs) maintaining since 2003. Do you know this meme? Yeah, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that should be the show art. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's the, that's the big piece that we can really try and try and unravel. And like, you know, even just the awareness about that, I don't think people were aware of that point, uh, like 10 years ago. Um, so I think that's just really critical. Before we go like super deep into, into what Gitcoin is, um, you've already kind of established that one of the problems you're attempting to address is this issue of kind of paltry compensation for open source maintainers, um, the, the the fact that there's not really, there is somewhat of an economy around open source software, but you believe that there's a lot of vulnerabilities and holes in that. Um, you mentioned also this idea of culture. I'll say this, and this is kind of anecdotal. What kind of challenges are there, I would say, culturally speaking, to introducing um, money, kind of finance into open source culture? Um, mm. Because I know that there's a very deep and to be honest, like qualified in, in, from different angles, kind of resistance in some way to introducing uh, money in some corners of open source culture. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit to kind of to, to paint the picture, to, to paint a, a, pic, a, a picture of, of, of what's, what's, what's happened. Yeah, it's, it's, super, it's super interesting. Like just the fact that like we, I think, have in... Mo- even you know not just tech but in like art generally i think there's an aversion to money right and i think you've both sort of seen this as well where yep. we ultimately <laughs> we ultimately find right that like okay like we want this to be valued in and of itself and by putting money towards it you've somehow corrupted the value or like the sanctity of the thing itself and i think what we're recognizing like going back to the point about sort of cities is that like no, it's just like part of, you know, not everything in a city is a, you know, economic transaction. Let's like living in a city is a much like more rich experience than that. But like, it's, it's certainly important to have like some form of economic function in that, in that sort of ecosystem. And I think similarly, we're realizing that like, well, okay, we had this sort of 1980s idea of like free software um, everything should kind of just be done um, totally, you know, um, without any real um, extrinsic sort of like compensation or motivation. And I think, you know, that led us to this kind of capture um, that occurred in the case of these sponsorships, in the case of these other, you know, there's almost um, the major challenge is that when you leave a void like that and don't introduce your own economy, you leave room for someone else to introduce theirs. And I think that that's kind of what happened in that like 1990s era of, you know, some of these big tech companies coming in and saying, well, wait a minute, we can just like kind of use all this and commercialize it and so forth. And, you know, to your point, like make a billion pull requests and, you know, start to really um, just change the direction of the software itself. Yep. And so um, it's it's one of those things where, and I think this is increasingly being recognized even just beyond like the Web3 space, this notion that like we need to, you can't just ignore new technologies. You can't just ignore new trends. You have to kind of figure out what role, you know, your sort of notion of culture or ideology or like belief about the future plays 
in that new social context. And so that to me is, is like the big piece of it. Um, I think that the big unlock to me is that, you know, a lot of people say, well, you're extrinsically motivating people. There's lots of great studies actually about the problems with extrinsic motivation as like the core reason for doing things. But what you're really doing is giving people who already have intrinsic motivation, extrinsic compensation to continue things that they otherwise would be spending their time on. So Mm -hmm. that's really the key unlock for me. And I think that's what a lot of folks in Web3 especially are realizing. I think it also makes it more inclusive to a wider group of engineers who can participate. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I think that is a real that is kind of like the fundamental logic there. I mean, it's it's not dissimilar in some ways to the arts, right? Where it's it's certainly a utopian ideal that was was experimented with for a long period of time, and you can kind of valorize that attempt for a while. But there is this kind of core, uh, what's the word? Like core kind of problem, right? If if open source software was being put forward as a contender or as a as a kind of competitor to uh, commercialize software, and then you know, uh, in order to be able to make a living, the people who are maintaining that have to ultimately divide their time by going and getting uh, seeking commercial employment, um, and are kind of hand tied in terms of how much they can accomplish. Um, uh, by pursuing this open source software, that seems ultimately like that vision is likely going to lose or at least be taken great advantage of. And exactly as you say, and I feel like this is a very similar principle in the arts, right? Like, I don't think you guys are talking about necessarily making every maintainer filthy rich. That's certainly not the proposal here. But ultimately, you know, a, 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 a modest or kind of like a sustainable. a sustainable amount of income allows for people to do the things that they want to do sustainably it also right? doesn't it's like, it also doesn't inhibit people who want to volunteer their time to volunteer their time exactly absolutely yeah and that's the big thing is I, a lot of people just want like a stipend to be able to do this full time they want to um like quit their regular jobs but they have families they have you know different obligations in their their regular life just as like you know ev- everyone does so i think that's an incredibly um important unlock and i think you know, it's almost like the reason I think that framing of like, like digital public goods is is so important. Like I know we're talking a lot about like open source software, and I actually think it might have been the Digital Public Goods Alliance that like started really this this trend around that naming. But like the reason that's so important is because like yeah, we think about roads, we think about bridges. Um, Nadia Eggball's work also touches on a lot of those like kind of um, like analogies, but like we see those things in our lives. We see them when we like are, you know, walking across, you know, a crosswalk. We see them when we're like mm-hmm. driving across a bridge or whatever it might be. You know, it's when the trash um, hasn't been picked up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that you don't see the random maintainer in Nebraska that you mentioned <laughs> that's just kind of like out there um, hacking away on something. And so it's it, it's invisible infrastructure in a sense. Um, and I think that is really um something that like by framing this as like a digital public good and by thinking about like this in the same category as these other types of um, tools that were like kind of pieces of infrastructure utilities, that we use, yeah. utilities, that's how we unlock this sort of next wave of, of interest in really sustaining these things. And I, I you know, going, I, I'll keep referencing the cities thing way, way too much, but like that's something that I really think um, Web3 gets, gets right. Well, speaking of cities, I mean, what do you think is the relationship between open source and the state? And I realize that's kind of like a 
a large concept of what the state is, but you know, like we're based in Germany and Germany's been really struggling with their digital infrastructure for decades now. And so, you know, a lot of help outside of the state would be very welcome. So where do you see the kind of relationship between the state and the open source community? That's a really good question. Like, I think, you know, there's a lot to unpack with with that, actually, which is it, it, for me super interesting because I, well, one thing I did before I was in crypto was I studied this weird combination of uh, like math and political science. And so a lot of the sort of political like uh, philosophy to me is is really grounding and I think that, you know, one of the big pieces when we talk about like public goods that we, we forget is we talk about them in the context of institutions and institutions, both in the sense of, you know, like large scale, like, you know, like things like the Federal Reserve or things like, like the government sort of like um, bodies that we, we interact with on a sort of, you know, daily or, or sort of like monthly, quarterly, yearly basis. But then on the other hand, like we're, we've got like these customs these institutional sort of customs that we've started to rely on um, as well. And like all of these things are wrapped up in kind of a 18th century notion of what our relationship to our communities are. And it's a very Anglo-centric sort of like perspective as well. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's super interesting to me that like, you know, one of the unlocks I think we, we have here that feels a bit like anarchistic, but like is actually, um, you know, much broader than that is the ability for us to actually start thinking about these global sort of like goods, whether they're digital public goods, whether they're even things like, you know, like the climate people, I think across the world now realizing that their governments haven't really done enough to solve those problems either. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a way to kind of use these new networks as a supplement to um, kind of solving global coordination problems that otherwise wouldn't get the kind of attention uh, that, they, that they need. So, you know, we used to think about like local communities, families, tribes, like now we've sort of got this 18th century notion of like nation states um, and, and incidentally kind of market societies like um, uh, Polanyi talks about like the great transformation and talks about like the fact that we moved from these overall like kind of much more um, small local organized groups to uh, sort of something where like the economy is like pervasive over most of, or like probably far too much of our lives. Um, mm-hmm. And that's like something that we've, we've just sort of lived with. And that transformation has also led to a lot less focus on like infrastructure that is beyond, um, you know, the realm of uh, a certain jurisdiction. So, you know, a country has like a market society style, like uh, incentive to fund things like roads, bridges, you know, electrical grids, that's, which is great. Also, like, I'm like, not against the fact that they're funding those things. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But they don't have an incentive to fund things that are like beyond their borders, right? So mm-hmm. it's much easier for a congressman to, you know, lobby for a, a, a new sort of like, kind of, public institution within their state in the US, or it's much easier for a mayor to advocate for a park to be um, kind of set up in in their neighborhood um, or in their city. It's very hard for them to say, well, let's allocate all this funding to, you know, a bunch of kind of like global software developers that kind of maintain this thing, you know, in this network around the world, or Mm -hmm. let's put funding towards, you know, like a 
set of global kind of climate activists that happen to be across all these different cities um, mm-hmm. outside of our jurisdiction. And so I, I don't know, like, you know, without Web3, to be honest, how we would have solved that problem. I'm not like completely convinced that like we've gotten to the point where Web3 can, but like it's certainly a step in the right direction versus all this sort of like baggage that we've accrued from like this like transition to the sort of like market society to the, like this sort of, sort of like 18th century concept of nation states that we have now. Which is a great segue, I think, to talk about what Gitcoin does. Today, I was looking on the website. Today, um, you've diverted, I think it's over $40 million worth of funding toward open source projects and developers. Would you mind describing how exactly um, how exactly the process works? Like what kind of infrastructure have you built with Gitcoin and how are you trying to solve these problems? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So the the biggest piece to you know what we're doing relies on quadratic funding, which is really um, just kind of fortunate timing. So as I was kind of talking about a little bit before, like there's a notion of um, you know sponsorship from these companies creating the sort of conditions where for maintainers to be funded. But what that forgets or what that lacks is like really any kind of community input. Um, so mm-hmm. although you might have like, you know, four or five organizations deciding on this funding, um, you don't have like a broad sort of democratic consensus on how, you know, funds are distributed or really where the projects are going. Um, quadratic funding kind of takes that idea and basically gives you tools to like start to signal your support for a given set of projects. So you can have sort of like a group of say a hundred projects, you have a two week or so period where people can actually donate their own funds to those projects. And then through that process, a matching pool is distributed so that you have basically um, the number of people donating to a project um, being a determinant of the total matching pool funds Mm -hmm. um, that those projects get. And what that gives you is two things. One, it gives you more funding for those projects, but two, it it gives you a sort of almost rank order list of projects based on, you know, community sentiment that you might want to support further in the future. So we've seen this used both, you know, throughout the Ethereum ecosystem to fund things like, um, you know, things like Wallet Connect, which people now kind of um, forget is like the main thing powering, like say Rainbow or these wallets that are much more sort of consumer facing um, in in the current cycle Um, or things like Ethers.js that kind of everyone uses to build um, their applications in Web3 as well. Um, but we also have a lot of like community organizations that have gotten funding through this, this sort of, um, this process. And some of those are even well beyond web three itself. So Tor would be an example of a project that mm-hmm. has received a, a pretty meaningful amount of funding through this process. Um, the defiant is like sort of a, a news publication is another. And so we've started to see almost the range of things that people consider digital public goods, um, We've seen that expand to the point where we've now started to even ourselves um, in the context of like the DAO, we're, we're sort of running this through. Uh, we started to consider, well, what categories of public goods do we actually all want to see funded? And we've started to really expand that scope um, even beyond just software or beyond just Web3 um, as well. So, um, yeah, quadratic funding is a really interesting kind of first experiment and like it's it's the tool that we've been most focused on. I think there are other methods or like other like kind of ways to 
um, leverage the sort of crowd sentiment about a set of projects to like get them to where they need to be. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think that the sort of like goal long-term for us is just to like be a test bed for um, more of these types of experiments to expand the range of kind of things we want to see in the world when it comes to digital public goods um, and to do that as a community versus doing that through these sorts of like centralized organizations. Can you tell us a little bit more about this um, expansion beyond software? I'm curious. Yeah. So, I mean, actually this, this next kind of like grants round 12, um, we do them quarterly. And so, which is just kind of, you know, its own um, historical um, accident that we just started doing these rounds quarterly. But um, for Grants Round 12, we're going to actually have um, a few rounds that are totally unrelated to software at large. So one of them is around climate, mm -hmm. which is actually just because we realized that a lot of people in Web3 now care about these topics, which is great. And mm -hmm. we have the ability to do these sorts of funding rounds beyond the scope of you know, traditional funding paths that these organizations might have um, through whether it's like, you know, a company that decides to allocate a small amount of money for co like corporate social responsibility or whatnot, or whether it's, you know, a, a sort of like national level government that decides it might want to put like a small stipend as a show of good faith towards climate change. Um, we have other ways to potentially fund those things now. So um, that's one. And another one is actually around just advocacy, uh, tech advocacy generally. So organizations like uh, EFF, uh, organizations like Fight for the Future, Freedom of the Press Foundation, um, they've all done amazing work just, you know, even beyond um, open source software advocating for, uh, you know, things that I would argue are kind of fundamental human rights like privacy, um, freedom of information, that sort of thing. And I think that is increasingly, you know, just something that we've seen that people in Web3 care about. And so therefore things that we should create these rounds uh, to, to fund. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of been like um, a very, it's a very early exploration for us, but it's something that we're just like excited to see the community rallying around. In the face of, uh, you know, a lot of kind of accusations of Web3 being, of course, you can't kind of disentangle it from libertarian origins <laughs> at all. <laughs> there's a um, lot of there's a lot of history there for sure. Yeah, but 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 the idea that you know uh, that you describe a lot of what you're doing and a lot of the infrastructure that you're attempting to build build as supplemental, I think is is actually a really wonderful way of framing things. Um, in a sense, too, I wonder. You know, I I was on a call with your co-founder, Kevin, this would have been about six months ago or so. And he was describing um, during COVID, a lot of the work that you all did in terms of attempting to provide uh, relief to brick and mortar organizations um, during lockdown. And I wonder, would you mind uh, describing some of that? Because honestly, uh, we'll get we'll get critical maybe in a little bit, but uh, it, to my knowledge, you're kind of like you, Gitcoin as an organization was kind of alone in pursuing that, and it was incredibly refreshing. and 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 it's a shame that it's it's one of the few examples I have to raise of, of such of such stuff happening. But I wonder, could you could you uh, maybe explain for people exactly what was behind that initiative and what happened? Absolutely, yeah. And we actually ran a few of those tests, which I, I think have kind of been a bit lost to history. We we just kind of yoloed them as we do a lot of these things, just you know, with the community. When people say, hey, let's try this, we are generally pretty open to trying it. And for that one in particular, 
we basically realized that there was a a kind of yeah a huge problem in these local communities during COVID where no one was really able to keep their businesses open um, and there was really no easy way for them to kind of like figure out a path for survival. Um, we did a very small pilot in Boulder, Colorado, uh, just around you know a few local businesses. And we had basically, I think in the range of several hundreds of thousands of dollars donated to those organizations. Um, and we used the same mechanism for people to kind of decide like, well, which businesses do you really frequent? Which businesses are kind of mm. you really interested in supporting? And we actually saw that that did lead a little bit to other organizations coming in, stepping up, uh, mostly in Web2 again, because like there is that sort of divide between um, the physical uh, sort of world and, and the sort of, you know, whatever metaverse Web3 is in, um, which is um, kind, of, kind of interesting to your point. Like there's not a lot of uh, overlap between um, the, those, those groups uh, yet. But I think that um, it was a really interesting experiment for us just to see that like, hey, the same tooling, the same kind of incentive structure and mechanism that we use in Ethereum like works for these other sort of like sets of, of stakeholders. Um, we did that as well with like a set of COVID-19 specific grantees um, for relief efforts early on in the pandemic. And we also did that for um, a bunch of uh, like Black Lives Matter related organizations um, in, in sort of mid 2020 as well. And so like, it's just interesting to see how we can use the same models, the same tooling in the context of um, other social problems. Cause I really think that like, again, like going back to this notion of like public goods, like these are all just different types of social kind of um, pr problems or like social issues that like we need to kind of, I think face in a way that's distinct from the sort of market society um, system that we're in um, at the moment. So um I don't know if that fully answers the question, but hopefully that's, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I, I just wonder, because obviously, in a sense, you all are kind of piloting this this quadratic funding model. There's definitely trade-offs to such a model, right? Like one couldn't confuse it with a kind of carte blanche kind of state support model, given that it, it requires yes. people voting for very specific businesses, right? Like I assume some businesses didn't get money from, you know, who could have got money from that process. But, but I wonder, you know... Uh, in piloting those, um, in piloting uh, uh, such an initiative, have you ever had any interest shown by uh, state government entities um, in in what you all are building? So we we actually have had some interest from, especially um, the Colorado sort of government. Um, there's actually um, a lot of sort of history there between. Uh, you know, well, I don't know if folks are familiar with like, you know, ETH Denver and these other conferences that have happened for the last mm -hmm. few years in the community in, in, in Denver and in Colorado, but there's a lot of history there. And so um, actually the, the state government is, is quite supportive of these initiatives. Um, and we haven't really figured out exactly what that long-term like broader partnership looks like, but we're certainly open to it. Like, although I'm kind of, you know, noting that we're, we're a bit antiquated in the way we think about things like nation states, I think that there's still obviously a role for them. Um, I wouldn't go sort of as far as to like totally dismantle them. Um, although some people in, in the space, you know, might. Um, and I think that that's ultimately, yeah, like uh, the starting point for this, this conversation about what is the eventual, you know, sort of bridge between web two and, and, and sort of like traditional existing societies and like web three look like, 
um, which may be a lofty way to think about it, but I really do think these are almost like two um, slightly divergent, like separate societies at the moment that can still come together more sort of like um, more actively. And, and hopefully this is one way that that can happen. That kind of leads nicely into a question that I have, you know, public goods are somehow intrinsically political. You're, you know, you're talking about um, funding things such as privacy, which is, of course, you know, inherently political. How do we define privacy and, you know, how much privacy does a, does a, should a citizen have, et cetera. So I would be really curious to know how you all kind of vote on and who, you know, who decides who receives the grant and if there have ever been any kind of political rifts between you know, if there, have there ever been any kind of, I don't know about scandals, but there are just the dirt. That's it. <laughs> Which is maybe community yeah. blowback or something. <laughs> yeah, I do think that there is actually often a lot of divergence in like some people really have strong beliefs about like what types of projects we should or shouldn't allow onto the platform. Um, some mm-hmm. people have really strong beliefs about the types of categories we should focus in on. I think that historically we've been trying to provide as neutral sort of a platform as possible. But in the last six months, we have really handed over a lot of that control to uh, the DAO and the DAO has really been voting on what categories make the most sense um, Mm -hmm. for us to be working towards. And so there is a level, you know, even though when we were doing this sort of as our own traditional company, we were trying to figure out, you know, what, um, what can we do to stay as neutral as possible? Now there's almost a level at which we want the community to be opinionated. We want them to have a stance on what kinds of things yeah. are good. And mm-hmm. I think that that's totally okay as long as we're like being inclusive about um, the communities that are are part of um, the Gitcoin ecosystem and like that we're, we're serving ultimately. So um, it's actually very related to something that like, I think um, like Toby and the other internet team have talked a lot about, um, they wrote a piece called Positive Some Worlds, which talks a lot about like, yeah, what are the publics we're serving? What is like the definition that we're using for like good? These are very like philosophical questions, but I think that they're really relevant in the context of, well, if we're building a new sort of, you know, society of sorts or whatever we want to call it, then we need to have, you know, um, one, some form of like true representation, um, but also some like, real um hard like conversations about what our values are in crypto and like what things we want to see um and i don't think we're going to shy away from those conversations necessarily um and i actually think there's a lot of really interesting work sort of happening on this just around um this which i don't know if like um this will be recent still when when this goes goes out but like versus put forward this sort of declaration of of interdependence fit fittingly uh <laughs> given the name um and um, it kind of was one take on like what kind of things should our values um, align with in in Web three. Um, so those are all things that we're supporting. Um, we I, we actually did support like verses in, in that initial um, launch, and I think it's one of many sort of conversations we'll be having about this um, in the years to come. Yeah, it's funny as well because I I feel like I mean given the scope of the conversation we've had so far, it does feel I did welcome what versus did uh, made uh, uh, did with that statement and it does feel often surprisingly when you're kind of really close or in the weeds that it is important to come out and clarify such things whereas in my experience for example like you know the connection between open source uh, culture and web3 is really clear. 
mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, despite the fact that like I'll end up inevitably. I'm not on Twitter very much at the moment for health, like health reasons. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, in, invariably every week I'll end up with a conversation in a, in some kind of conversation pitting the two concepts against each other, which to me is like. Well, we largely came to Web three through the privacy conversation, and so I think a lot of, I mean, yeah, that was like a big part of well, it. Yeah, I'm like the indie web conversation, exactly. and basically a bunch of open source developers being like, you know what, this is unsustainable. Exactly. So, so it's 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 but 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 you're right. I mean, it's one of these things that you know it's difficult to tell like uh from from a very kind of uh, a very local perspective quite what message is 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 being kind of is 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 tornadoing somewhere else outside of your purview and it feels like yeah absolutely you know like putting forward um a vision of a new web as an interdependent entity as something that is not necessarily repeating the mistakes of the the, the previous web the the criteria of which for me would be not placing an emphasis on independence, um, which seemed to be like one of the one of the kind of like the Achilles heels of, of, of previous utopian uh, 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 explorations with the web. Which is why this focus on individual wealth in the Web3 space has really given it a bad reputation. Yeah. So, I mean, so yes. it, that's really cool. I would love to know more actually about Versus and we should probably invite them on because I, I, I infer that there's more going on there than than just simply a, a co-authored document. Um, uh, and I feel a little in the dark on that, but I, I feel like that the, the point is well taken that 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 message does need to does need to be put out there because oftentimes you do find yourself in conversations where you have to establish um, uh, uh, the, the in actuality the vast majority of people at least and also a great deal of people specifically in the Ethereum community have been concerned about piloting public goods, mm-hmm. kind of piloting different models for organizing a society, a toy society at this point. Um, and that actually a lot of the kind of under underlying principles behind that are not super far away from a lot of progressive principles um, uh, that, that one could uh, kind of uh, historically identify with, with open source communities. And I feel like that, that aspect has been lost on a lot of people, which is a historic ultimately, but, but it's real. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that we have this problem where we, you know, have introduced, so I was just talking, I guess, about like the idea that like we're introducing economies to, you know, these new sort of um, local jurisdictions that didn't have these sort of systems before. And that's great. But also, yeah, I mean, like a lot of people are really not familiar with how to, um, yeah, I think maybe in a more kind of positive some way about like the ways in which they interact with those economies. So, you know, we're, we're running the risk definitely of like reinventing a lot of existing systems with their existing problems when we kind of don't think carefully about what we're defining um, in, in terms of our values. And so, yeah, Versus is one great experiment on that front. And I think there's a lot of others um, sort of starting to emerge. And it, it's actually great because like in, I, I do think there's a shift happening where like in 2017, you know, 2018, there wasn't a lot of conversation about these things. Um, it was mostly kind of just like, you know, everyone remembers the kind of crazy ICO boom and, you know, it was very much not, I think, principled is like one way to put it. But like the the systems we're building now feel like they're rooted at least more often in like a real set of values, even things that are like, you know, random DeFi projects now, like sometimes like as very specific values um, and like are thinking in terms of like the impact that they can have on the broader world. And I think that's something that like never would have happened like three, four years ago. So yep. um, I'm like optimistic. I'm like, you know, cautiously optimistic. Um, 
but yeah, I do think that it's a really important conversation for us to have. Yeah, it, it is. And it, it, it's also, it's an, it's an unusual, and I would say kind of like a, a, in some ways it's a counterintuitive conversation to have because we, we have inherited in many ways the burden of expectation that money is, is necessarily bad. But to go back to your previous point, this idea of saying that a maintainer, for example, has more agency in the work they choose to do in the world and the good they choose to commit their time to when they are sustainable. Oddly enough, you could make the argument that as a result of Web3 being financialized uh, from the beginning, I feel like a lot of those, uh, a lot of that sentiment of, of being able to be principled is in some way um, connected to the fact that a great many developers in the space are now also personally quite comfortable. You know, that, that it's an interesting scenario and ultimately it'll be an interesting test, right? Absolutely. I, I actually think that's a really critical point, which is we often kind of goes back to, yeah, to the point about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Like we are in some ways privileged to be able to like actually express and like to put forward our values and to try and act directly on our values. It's very um, challenging, I think, for some people to be able to do that and still to maintain the sort of, you know, um, obligations that they have or to like, you know, even just like support, you know, their families and so forth. And so like, to me, um, there's a sense of um, responsibility to ensure that more people are, you know, financially able to have those conversations mm -hmm. um, and that like we can include them in those conversations um, in the years to come, because there is, um, that's actually definitely been a criticism in the current sort of cycle that like, Hey, yeah, everyone who did really well, like in 2017, 2018, and it, it now sort of has the ability to have these conversations. It's just one subset of the broader population. And I think that's mm -hmm. like very true. So like, how do we, you know, encourage and like create, um, space and like kind of uh, mechanisms where more people can be involved in those conversations. And I think that, you know, we're starting to see those experiments emerge in some of these, even, even to be honest, like in some of these like DeFi like projects, which I think is not something I would have thought, thought about saying like two, three years ago. So um, it, it's super interesting. And I think we're, we're definitely, I think still much further along than we would have been, um, had we not had like this whole like last five years and the wave of interest in this space that we've had. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. It's like it, all in all, it ends up working out net positive, even though with <clears throat> the ICO boom and a great number of people kind of not delivering on their promises, um, uh, even though th those examples exist, you know, it, in my mind, I'm definitely like a glass half full type person. I'm like, it's actually quite remarkable to me just how many people are still around, right? Like um, many people who perhaps perhaps don't need to be, which is which is in some way kind of a measure of the seriousness of, of a proposal is if someone sticks to it when they don't actually need to for market-based reasons or for professional reasons, right? Like, um, yeah. And I wonder, I mean, st sticking with that point and staying, like trying to stay somewhat critical, you know, the one thing that I think there is a lot of, uh, credibility to is saying that you know at this point with the amount of money in the space um what is the point whereby we can all begin to reasonably expect a large amount of developers to start developing their uh, 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 dedicating their time to these kind of public goods projects or projects that may show like a meaningful impact outside of let's say 
the developer the development community right I, I, and I, I use I use the example for for example of you know one of the great kind of promises that I don't think was made cynically in in many cases of the web3 space was okay well we're going to uh, bank the unbanked right we're going to create a means for people in uh, insecure uh, situations to be able to uh, protect their wealth and be able to, you know, engage in commerce uh, across the world, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, in your mind, at what point does it start becoming a very reasonable expectation to like turn up the pressure <laughs> to yes. see more of that stuff, you know? Cause I, and, and, and I'll say this with me, I, I think personally, like I'm, I'm, I'm more patient than the biggest critics on this because I think oftentimes there's also a lot of assumptions made as to how ready a lot of these utilities are for prime time. And so irrespective of the fact that there's a growing like mound of money and resources in the space, I, 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 I'm a little bit more patient than most, but, but I wonder it's worth having that conversation. I think you're the perfect person to have that conversation. With. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely think that's a perfect phrase actually. Cause I remember a lot of the projects in like 2017, like bank the unbanked was a huge phrase. And like, I really don't think that like, you know, looking at the average, like, um, gas fee, like that we've really gotten there and, um, the Ethereum ecosystem, like, um, I think that we still have a long way to go. Yeah. In terms of, um, just making, which, which I know is happening. Like, I, I definitely think that like, um, sort of layer two scalability strategy and that sort of stuff is, is working and starting to create like, you know, space for, for basically more people to get involved that otherwise would be financially kind of blocked from participating. But I think, the other big problem to your point is, yeah, there's there's already like so much money in the space and like what percentage of it is meaningfully being uh, dedicated to social sort of causes. Like mm-hmm. my view is that, you know, I, I'm not like um, <laughs> anti-taxation. Like I think that like there's a role of like um, uh, sort of uh, taxes and all of this, but like I don't think those necessarily need to be the kind of taxes that we think about in the context of like nation states that can be these sorts of, um, you know, I mean, even in some sense, what optimism is doing is a sort of uh, tax with MEV. And this becomes a way by which we can start to um, take money that would be otherwise going towards very um, kind of zero sum, just like uh, trader sort of like try and make as much money as possible causes to different types of public goods and the retro public funding experiments that they've just started doing, I think are a really interesting like um, way to think about that. There's, there's also been a lot of experiments just sort of slowly popping up around um, the idea of basically just like uh, creating a kind of giving pledge. And I think that the, the need for that to probably be pushed forward more actively than it is right now is, is pretty high. Um, it's something that we've thought a lot about, um, but we're trying to sort of like be, um, be cautious about like pushing too, too actively um, until, you know, uh, we feel like the ecosystem is really ready for it. But we're slowly, you know, just in kind of private at the moment, finding a lot of people who are reaching out saying like, hey, like I, I want to make this commitment. I want to like find a way to get more involved in these, these conversations um, and to like actually give back. And that's on its own uh, being a really good starting point. But I think that, you know, if we can build more tools, more infrastructure, like what Optimism is doing and like build this directly into um, the mechanisms that we all use day to day anyway, then that's like the real, the real win. And, you know, 
maybe I actually probably shouldn't have led with calling that taxation. <laughs> um, but yeah. like, that's actually, I think, a really important shift in, in how we're thinking about this. So for those who are uninitiated, um, I'm actually not familiar with what Optimism is doing, but I assume that what you're describing there is something along the lines of like, yield returns from staking or fees like traditional trading fees that that are incurred through the massive amount of activity that happens within the ethereum ecosystem that the portion of that could be routed toward public goods or social causes is that what you're describing or am i getting it wrong the the mechanism is actually so mev stands for like minor extractable value and it's basically a way to um kind of run essentially bots that like take about like the details of this are like also something I'm probably going to botch in terms of the actual mechanisms. But the short of it is basically that you're able to kind of extract these, um, this sort of um, these excess fees that miners are able to take. And then, you know, if you're doing that in the context of um, your sort of roll up solution, you can take those funds and then distribute them back to whatever really, um, you see fit. And if you can be like the best at, at doing that, um, you can kind of like, you have a say in basically those things. And it's just lucky, I guess, that like, you know, optimism and other layer twos um, are being socially conscious about it um, and distributing them back to public goods because they could really use them for anything, right? Like there's yeah. no reason um, they have to give them back. And so um, that's kind of a, you know, interesting um, social kind of layer to all this is that like, and and actually Vitalik, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention like the um, PC wrote on legitimacy, um, which I feel like feels like it was like a month or two ago was probably like, like six or eight months ago. I I don't remember exactly when time is um, a, uh, a flat circle, but the um, idea of kind of, you know, setting these norms, right. In addition to kind of thinking about these taxation models so that there's more groups like optimism, um, or, you know, um, more groups like Gitcoin that are doing this, I think that is equally important um, to actually implementing the mechanisms themselves. So what are optimism funding? Sorry if you mentioned that already. I, I probably can't. I, I like. I wonder if I'm like, I'm not supposed to probably front run what the results were <laughs> for uh, okay. their first experiment. <laughs> um, but they actually just finished, uh, yeah, a, a first experiment around this Um and uh, actually, it, it's it's super interesting because maybe maybe by the time this is released, it'll be public, and, and I, I'm you know fretting for nothing. But the um, the interesting note is that there's actually a lot of overlap, but also a lot of difference between the things that were funded in the first experiment there and the things that were funded actually in Grants Round Eleven in Gitcoin. But a lot of it was like different types of Ethereum infrastructure um, and Ethereum tooling. So it's very much specific to Web three. It's not quite you know expanding. Uh, Mm -hmm. beyond the scope of like what we're immediately kind of focused on when it comes to digital public goods, but it's a start, I think, towards that broader conversation. Um, So yeah, mostly Ethereum stuff is, is kind of the short answer. That makes sense. Yeah. That's really cool. I was not, I was, I don't know how I missed this. Optimism is is a public benefit corporation dedicated to scaling Ethereum in a way that enshrines fair access to public goods. It's actually really funny that they're very quiet about, I think a lot of, um, the good they're doing. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I can also uh, kind of, you know, try to shout out to them more. Cause I think, yeah, they're a really great uh, group um, and, and super values aligned with, with the space. Bringing up optimism. Uh, uh, are there any other things that you see in the space currently that give you optimism? 
That's a, yeah, like, I think there's a lot actually around DAOs. So there's a lot to be skeptical of with DAOs right now, I think as well. Like we have this problem where, I, I don't know what to call this. It's like a like a Goodhart's Law of sorts for like Web3 where like when something, um, Goodhart's Law is like, you know, when something becomes like a, a measure becomes like a target, it, it ceases to be like mm-hmm. a good measure. And like, I think when we start, we, we almost get like too attached to a concept. Like we're like DAOs are, going to solve everything and then we like all start to make DAOs and then DAOs become like the target but I think there are a lot of DAOs that are doing really interesting work um, in their own sort of like smaller um, niches so for example um, EcoDAO was recently spun up by I think it was uh, David Phelps and Lonnie Trock and a few others and it's mm-hmm. been a really great experiment just around like hey can we like you know create an organization specifically for climate change in the context of Web3 like I don't see why not. It's kind of the same as spinning up like an LLC or something. And like the sort of, again, like 18th century model of like what it means to organize. Um, but, you know, we're just creating that specifically in, in the Web3 context for um, a similar organized cause. Um, and then there's organizations like, um, you know, what Austin Robbie is doing with, with Ample, which are taking like kind of mm-hmm. um, actually speaking of the fact that like, you know, we, used to be so caught on like the idea of corporations, they're taking more of a cooperative model and uh, experimenting with like funding artists through um, a sort of literal web three cooperative. Cause I think we often forget like DAOs, you know, are just structures that we're embedding our own values onto. And like, we often have, actually there's a great piece, which you probably know from uh, uh, Kia called uh, prehistory of DAOs talking about like guilds mm-hmm. and, companies and cooperatives and these sorts of framings. Um, but I think what we've realized is that like, Hey, yeah, let's like, we can experiment with cooperatives and other models that like historically were just way too um, out of reach. Like it's way harder in web two and like regular society to create a cooperative because everyone's, you know, basically it's like the clippy of like that world is like, do you want to start a company? Like, it's just like, it, it will like ask you like, you know, like what, like, what do you mean cooperative? Like it, it, we don't understand basically these new, these new framings, I think, because we got so caught up the, the good hearts law, I guess, of like web two was like the corporation. It was like, Oh, let's just like make everything a corporation. Um, yep. And so I think that Austin Robbie's experiment and like others like that around just like, well, let's try experimenting with cooperatives. Let's try experimenting with like new governance structures. All of that is also like at a meta level, very optimistic for me. Um, because mm-hmm. we didn't really get a chance to, I think, fully explore those models before. So there's like, yeah, two levels of this. There's like really interested in the eco DAOs of the world and the projects that are starting to really think about like, well, how can we organize around a specific set of values and a specific social mission? Um, the other one I'll mention maybe is Dream DAO, which is Gary Shang's project. And they're doing a lot of work around, um, they actually were a nonprofit before Civics Unplugged, um, but around sort of like, um, educating um, Gen Z folks about like new technologies and sort of new mm-hmm. social movements. Um, cool. And then there's the meta level of, well, how can we actually change the kinds of structures that we are, you know, organizing through, through with DAOs, you know, versus just replicating a company in, in a sort of web three uh, cloak. So um, anyway, that's a very long answer, but I hope that's, uh, <laughs> that no, long, long is really good. You're also giving us a list of people to invite on the podcast. Which is <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's like free, free labor. Uh, for the- <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder, uh, 
on the kind of like to take the counterpoint um you've you've articulated a bunch of projects that give you optimism i wonder for people who aren't so close uh, to the space you know what are you concerned about and i mean you mentioned a little bit earlier kind of higher level uh, uh concerns about you know uh, replicating uh, replicating similar similar structures uh, that we had before, or replicating a concentration of of resources um, in much the way that we had a, con- a concentration of resources before. Is there anything else that you're that you're concerned about uh, in, in the space? Oh man, so many things. I, I mean, Let's go. I, Let's go. <laughs> I think the um, the big one that a lot of people talk about is kind of you know the. Um, the hyper-financialization um, that comes from like creating all these economies. Like I do think it's important to have them, but I think that, you know, we, we need to think about like, what are the actual ways that we, um, and I think that actually Austin, uh, Austin's work is particularly relevant here where it's like, how do we actually make sure that we're not just recreating like basically plutocracies or creating sort of systems where the person with the most money or the most capital is just like, able to steamroll the entire process. And I think that one way to do that is to kind of model what, you know, traditional cooperatives have done or what even um, with like uh, uh, friends with benefits, what they're doing with like the city DAOs where it's, you know, kind of collapsing down the number of tokens you hold just to like one person, one vote back to like traditional sort of democratic structures. Um, But the the risks of having a kind of hyper-financialized system and for that to be, uh, you know, governed by potentially... um, yeah, a lot of the uh, wrong people um, with the wrong incentives, like that's like a huge risk that I, I don't think we fully figure out how to solve. And then the other point I think is just like, how do we think about the, you know, the risks of, I guess, ironically, like centralization in the context of like mm-hmm. a decentralized system. So one thing we've tried to do um, in, in the Gitcoin context is like, we are actively trying to fund like other DAOs, like we shouldn't just be like, and I think this is, should be true across like any number of these organizations where like you should be trying to fund and like cooperate with and coordinate with other organizations rather than just trying to do everything yourself. And I think there is a risk where like um, we end up with these like really, um, you know, dense, like kind of, you know, web two level, like we're scale organizations, but just like in web three, like with a token, and that to me is like not really um, where we want to go when it comes to like thinking about like a kind of uh, like, you know, network um, economy. So those are two pieces that definitely um, worry me a bit. The, the institutional piece actually, like there's a, a great uh, piece by um, Yvonne Illich called Silence is a Commons, just talking about like the uh, sort of notion of institutions and like why having like these kinds of like very dense institutions is, is maybe bad. Um, and that's kind of informed. Yeah. A lot of my thinking around that, um, that topic, but those are two pieces that like, just, yeah, come to mind and I'm sure there's more, but we we can start there. I have a question. Maybe this is a bit of a softball or like a layup, <laughs> but you're talking about the, the concentration of power here. And I mean, it seems like a very clear thing that open source can help fight against, especially through interoperability and portability of user data. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I think that the big kind of problem of like, the reason we're also scared of like, you know, for example, meta, like the Facebook, whatever we want to call that thing, like we're scared of it because it's definitely 
like the opposite of, you know, like owning our own data or having like that sort of like portability. It's literally just like kind of let's, and in fact, like they, they actually somehow like made it perhaps appear as dystopian as it possibly could by like using the example of like the boardroom where everyone's just like having the same meeting as you might have like in real life, just like on the whiteboard, but like in VR, which just sounds <laughs> horrifying. But like that, that sort of, you know, framing um, is, is mostly I think at odds with like the idea of like open portable like data and like, yeah, like really like the open source movement at, at large. So like, I actually think, I, I think that's a really important point. And I think we're fortunate enough to have a lot of these standards already in front of us. Like I, I actually think um, like ENS, um, Ethereum name service is a great example of like what it could look like if we had like a signing <clears throat> with Ethereum across mm-hmm. the entire web and just had like that become an open standard for us to like have portable sort of fluid access to um, our identities online. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause yeah, I mean like if you don't, if it, I'm, I, I did mention before that I'll keep going back to the analogy of the city. Like if we think of it, like, again, as a city, like we, we surely like the, 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 the fundamental, like almost existential, um, like thing that you need to have in order to like be in really any sort of city or jurisdiction is like, you need to have a sense of uh, self that you feel like a sense of ownership over. <laughs> like mm-hmm. surely that's like the fundamental, like, like that's a prerequisite. So and the right um, to move cities with all your stuff. <laughs> yeah. And like to like, to like exist, like, you know, as you see fit according to your values and so forth. Like, but, but also just like, I think to fundamentally just to like, to, to be like, you are referencing what you are mm-hmm. versus like having other people reference mm-hmm. uh, what you are. So, um, and I think that like, yeah, something like ENS maybe could be a, a solution to that problem. Um, but I think that, you know, we we run the risk right now, again, like if we don't define our values of just being like 10 years from now saying like, oh, like, yeah, I, you know, we never thought that we would end up with like, you know, uh, like our meta ID as like our, <laughs> our like central like point of like contact with like everything we're doing in Web3 or whatnot. Like I think... Um, it is a really important piece of this. Um, and it's something that like we have to take seriously. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's something that we discussed recently on the podcast. I've been trying to tweet about this a ton, uh, cause it was a bit of a, uh, an eye opener. I mean, related specifically to, you know, the NFT craze kind of taking some of this stuff prime time was just how quickly, you know, when these conversations slip from generally a very sensitive kind of nerdy, uh, a community that I'm most familiar with in this space to the wider public. It was like, you know, there is this real danger that if an understanding of an NFT, for example, is just simply a digital collectible, like a scarce digital collectible, and we don't talk about the portability and we don't talk about, you know, open identities and we don't talk about the decentralized component. We don't talk about all the things that kind of make drew, it interesting. Yeah, make it new, <laughs> then there's nothing really to stop. And I'm, and I have no doubt that we will see in the next few months or whatever, you know, centralized entities being like, yeah, sure, like we can, we can do this, like we can give you digital collectibles, you can use your credit card with us, you know. There's like nothing to impede that really, and so yeah, like emphasizing, emphasizing like all that's good with blockchains, like all that's really handy about them, 
is really useful. But but I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, like I saw uh, Bas Grassmeyer uh, made a piece today, um, wrote a piece today specifically about the Hicket Nunc kind of drama that was happening. I was tweeting about this earlier this week where in kind of real time, it was like a really nice education, I think, for a lot of people who... Uh, so uh, I'll clarify for everybody what, what went on. Basically, Hickek Nunt is a, um, an art platform um, that exists within the Tezos blockchain. Um, it was started by a lone uh, developer, um, and a lot of people use it. It has like a really, really active user base. A lot of artists went on there. They posted their artwork there. They sold their artwork there. Uh, kind of a really cool example of like a community in the space. Um, and the developer, for various reasons we won't go, go into, decided to pull it down. And of course, at that point, I was quite shocked or surprised in some way just how many artists were participating within it who were terrified, right? Because all of a sudden they were like, well, I can't see my art on the webpage anymore because the webpage is down. Does that mean it's gone, right? Like what happens to my collector base? What happens, whatever. And of course, the really nice... Uh, news that got to be shared afterwards was no actually look this is a great example of the utility of of web3 because actually all your transactions all your artwork all your relationships to collectors etc are still stored on this permanent immutable blockchain and anybody can just make an interface and and within i think like an hour or two someone had already made like another interface so that you could interact with with the website as you did before and it's like you know these things i think if you're familiar with the space and you kind of got like pilled many years ago, this is like catnip, right? This is just like obvious, but it, it it's it's sobering in some ways to like, in some ways you kind of need these big dramas and these big kind of like clashes to happen in order for, I think, a wider group of people to understand the utility. Because all of a sudden what went from being like a Titanic level disaster <laughs> for literally, I mean, it's like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of artists, all of a sudden was like, oh, Oh, I guess that is different, right? That Amazing! Isn't, it was that fast. Yeah, within an hour. I mean, and don't get me wrong, there's still drama. There's there's always drama. <laughs> it's never uncomplicated, right? But like, but but on the on the basic principle, like it was an example of you know these utilities working as they ought to. Um, and and I, I can imagine for the X number of users of that uh of that uh, uh that platform, um, you know that that was a, a huge a huge lesson and I, I imagine we'll we'll see we'll see many many more of those but there will be there will be drama <laughs> there will Absolutely. Be that is that is like the you can always know you can always you can always guarantee that there will uh <laughs> there'll be drama at some point the the big thing about that to me was just that like yeah i mean we it's a great example of like the the sort of like portability and like the fact that we have these open standards that we can all use but like it's it's a good example of the fact that like that's not guaranteed like as well like it's yeah. a it's a great yeah. point that like i mean it's kind of lucky in some sense that like yes that's true for that particular project but there's actually like a bunch of projects i'm sure like in the NFT, NFT space i won't like name any particular but like where if you they just disappeared like that's it like they're like gone yeah. and like it's <clears throat> it's partly because some projects are taking a much harder stance on like well we need to have like you know um like something like ipfs we need to have like the decentralized data storage we need to have like the actual like decentralized like platform like those sorts of principles need to be um like i think front and center as we start to think about like what these tools are like what the like metaverse tm like kind of means to us right so um yeah that was a really great case and just the speed at which people uh kind of got involved and just like forked it was was awesome 
Totally. And what you're describing there ultimately is our dependencies, right? Interdependencies, to be Boom. clear. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, there's a, you could milk that way go. further. You could book that way further. Actually, that, that, oh, that's really good. Okay. Oh, damn. Wow, Matt's excited. Well, I love I love wordplay. I love wordplay, and that's because it is exactly that. It's the interdependence of code bases. Yes. Damn it. There we go. And it's it, but it's but exactly what you're describing, and, and examples like that also kind of expose those interdependencies. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> um, they expose those interdependencies. And, and in many ways you don't, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like uh, we had a friend recently who, who was, uh, who was fished for their, uh, their, their wallet. And I was kind of like discussing with her in a, in a DM. And I was like, yeah, this is just like, it's just going to happen. Like, I mean, whether it's like fishing or like, some weird platform goes down, whatever. These are just kind of like the battle scars. It's like, it happens to everybody. It's like, there's no way around it. But the 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 cool thing about that, in a sense, so long as the damage is not too bad, is ultimately those are the moments in which you learn, right? And so the, the positive spin, I think, on the on the hick et nunc uh, 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 scenario is all of a sudden we have a bunch of people like, not just aware of like the the superficial aspects of how they interact with the web, but all of a sudden being like, oh, these interdependencies are actually crucial. Yes, absolutely. Like that to me is like the big unlock is like, wait a minute, like we all actually, we, we all do rely on each other in this space. Like we all like are, and that's like, again, kind of like it's a nice loop back to like the beginning of like, you know, the conversation that opens for software. Like we cannot actually build the things we're building without each other. We, we can't do this on our own. You can't just build up like your own kind of walled garden. You have to be building on top of all the building blocks that people have already put before you. And that is like kind of a, you, you have to opt into that. And that's kind of like a nice like feature of building in web three. Um, I, I'm actually like kind of curious, like, you know, from, from your perspective, like going back to the sort of conversation on optimism, like what, what are you like really optimistic about in the context? And I, I, I kind of totally missed the idea of like NFTs as, uh, as like ways to fund public goods, which is a whole conversation there around like optimism. But like, I, I'm curious, just like, what do you find most fascinating about that sort of movement, that space right now, from your perspective, like beyond, of course, this sort of portability aspect, like, and, and the fact that we can build these things together in this way, like from a, like an artistic perspective, like what are you seeing kind of speak to you in in that space? Well, Matt and I have been involved in the music industry for years now, and it's notoriously a really awful (laughs) predatory industry, but also one where, you know, when things moved from uh, analog to digital to streaming, it really became like Indian major kind of got squashed into one container, which was just streaming dynamics. And so- All of the world's music is now priced with the kind of logic of the biggest pop uh, releases of the year, which to me makes zero sense at all. So what I'm most excited about is for communities to take back agency and um, be able to control the kind of economics around the kind of art that they release, because different different kinds of music and different art forms have different needs when it comes to pricing. Yeah. I mean, I think that speaks a little bit also to this distinction. Like if there's a concern in web three, let's say around NFTs um, that, you know, without thinking about the good stuff, like without thinking about the, the underlying protocol, without thinking about the fact that 
um, you know, the, 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 without thinking about principle, principles of like decentralization or interoperability or whatever it might be, uh, you know, the idea of an NFT is really, really easy to co-opt, right? Because if NFT just becomes a kind of husk of like a, of a term that can then be sold by a Spotify or a whatever, Amazon or something like this, you know, it kind of looks like an NFT. It maybe smells like an NFT, but that's not an NFT. And you can use that similar analogy, I think, with like independent music, right? That like in many ways, this was, I mean, the original reason why I started using the term interdependent music um, was my understanding, you know, we both have spent now probably half our lives pretty much dedicated to what most people would consider marginal independent music. Um, <laughs> and the the striking thing to me was how that narrative over time became slightly warped, where the idea of independent music became basically a marker for certain aesthetics, right? Certain aesthetic choices, certain styles of music. Um, but to me, fundamentally, that, that kind of misses the point. That in actuality, like, many of the things that we best appreciated about independent music were actually the interdependent parts it, that, uh, and the interdependent parts allowed for, for example, a, I'll just use a, a, a really lay example, like a Kurt Cobain to emerge in the world, right? Like the fact that you had an organization that, you know, uh, because it was a different distribution network and that's essentially what it, NFTs are, which is why I'm excited about. Exactly. And so the opportunity to give as many people as possible access to their own pricing logics, to mm -hmm. their own, uh, to be able to tailor their own distribution, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of, of their art and to ultimately, which is maybe a more marginal position that we take to see the distribution of your work as a in, integral part of the work, which is actually in my mind a, a very independent music principle, right? Like going back to Rough Trade or like Discord Records or something like this. It's like And to be able to publicly split profits with your collaborators in a way that kind of publicly shows who you're working with. Exactly. And then that's the second point I would get to that I think is pretty interesting actually related to the fact that you were saying that you used to work a lot on machine learning stuff, is that, you know, in our other cap in some ways is we've done a lot of work with machine learning. Um and the what becomes really, really painfully obvious to us to, to build on what you said earlier, like this is coming and that's not fatalism or Borg complex as someone accused me of the other day. That's just like real. That's just real, right? That That's, it, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry to break it to you, but like this stuff is coming and it's coming fast. And the challenge that we have, at least with some of the machine learning stuff is if we don't figure out some of these interdependencies, like for example, uh, you know, fair and appropriate accreditation and and remuneration of training data. Um, you know, fair and uh, just fair practice around citing influence, uh, citing influences. Fair practice around compensating often open source developers who contribute to the space. You want to talk about a centralized hellhole like that? That has the potential. To, that has a, the potential to be a really, really profound problem. Absolutely, you know what I'm saying. And like you know that, and we know that, but a lot of people don't know that, and they, and stuff gets lost in the details because machine learning, particularly, you know, people think about killer robots and they think it's all sci-fi or whatever. So it's really difficult to communicate that point. And so, for example, um, you know, on the recent series of NFTs we did, we wrote in. We always credit and 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 cut in uh, our collaborators in a very 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 transparent about that as part that's that's our protocol that's our principles right like we we do that but we also cut into the contract um open source developers who who contributed code that they didn't know we were going to use um and, and part of the excitement uh, at least from our perspective is seeing 
more people build these kind of, you know, like seeing a smart contract or these kind of uh, hard-coded, very public agreements as, in a sense, an institution of themselves, as a protocol of themselves. One, because I think it's like a really cool thing to do. Like, I wonder what would happen, for example, if the open source developer, you know, working on like interesting GAM work, putting that in the world was given a small cut of every piece of profit that was made from the code that they made from that, for, that they put out there. But number two, like on a more kind of grave level, that this is exactly the kind of society we need to pilot because I'm not messing around, you know, like I, I, I'm sure this isn't lost on you. And I'd love your opinion on it. But like when we're talking about ML stuff, this stuff's fucking real. Like, you know, there is a very, very real scenario like, like, forget about like Spotify selling NFTs and it, it being uncool or something like that. Like, <laughs> there's a very real, real scenario of like there being one model, right? Like, run by one company that yes. has the ability, and that's a, and and com- trying to communicate to that to someone who's like completely uh, 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 unaware of of um, uh, of those dynamics is quite difficult. But that doesn't make it any less grave. It's extremely scary to think about because, like, I, I forget who was saying this. Like, I think a lot of people are just saying like everything happens so much now. Like everything is ex- like yeah. accelerating now, <laughs> and like there's a sort of like you know I think we don't realize you know I don't I don't know if I'm like kind of Ray Kurzweil the singularity is gonna like take over like that like sort of yeah I'm that far gone on that but like I think that there's a difference between now what you're saying about like this yep. this point that like we are going to see um a natural amalgamation of you know these the data that we're using uh the algorithms that we're using um on that data all these things like naturally coalesce into one kind of almost entity of sorts and like that entity not being owned by or like accountable to like a broader public is like a huge potential risk that like, yeah, it might not even, it might even go beyond like the risks that we see with like a Facebook or like a Spotify or like whatever. It's just like a fundamental kind of like new sort of organization. There's this, great game uh deus ex from like the 90s that like oh, no I love one that game. remembers but like it's an amazing <laughs> amazing game i figured yeah you might you might have great music like, too great music yes like it's it's a uh, i actually really hope that at some point they remake it um it's it's like um it's hard to recommend to people because like it really like it just it doesn't quite hold up the story is kind of brilliant and you know of course like talks about some of these ideas of like um what it would look like to have uh, these these sorts of central organizations just like amalgamating all this data, all these like different components of, um, of effectively things that will eventually govern our daily lives and, and probably in many ways already do. So it's a huge point. It's like, um, it's hard for me to like think about like just what that, like it, it's such a, it's such an expansive topic that it's like hard to think of exactly what that looks like, but yeah. It's, it's something that like, I think we all have to have in the back of our minds as we think about like, well, what are we trying to achieve if we're like truly making Web3 movement? You know, what is that movement for? Uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, totally. I wish, I, I wish, I would love to see more work in Web3 looking specifically at that realm of machine learning. We're actually trying to do some work there, there ourselves. And like the, I, I never put this together, but what's really funny is that the first the first uh, decentralized tech project I worked on, I did while I was living by myself in LA. 
and I would spend my nights playing Deus Ex, and I wonder if subliminally, because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember that <laughs> as part of the story, but I, I very much like tied Deus Ex. It was the only thing that would run on my Mac laptop. Um, there was like very few games that would run. I would play Deus Ex and then think about uh, think about decentralized tech. So I, <clears throat> I wonder if there was some kind of a connection there. But but exactly that that that's the kind of those are the kind of things that I think one it's like it's very exciting because of course like putting forward a different vision for how how machine learning could work in a way like not dissimilar to what you're doing like piloting toy societies with these very at the moment quite small. Um, uh, 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 in these in these quite small uh, communities, I think I think is is really important and is really an opportunity for Web three because all of the tools are there, um, you know, uh, uh, to acknowledge people's work, to have stuff be open, to allow people to experiment with with open code and open models, for example, which is one of the things we've been trying to do with Holly Plus. You know, I'm not I'm not I, I'm kind of with you on I, I think Ray Kurzweil, largely speaking, is is. Uh, I think he's a he's a largely <laughs> misunderstood character. I, I, I have time. I kind, of, yes. I kind of I kind of actually yeah. just plopped down on the sofa next to me yesterday and was like, you know, I think Greg Kurzweil is underestimated. I do. I mean, <laughs> this is this is a longer thing, and, and if anyone knows Ray Kurzweil, please can can you uh, invite him to join us on this podcast because. <laughs> It's one of those things where I get that, like, I mean, in some ways, in some corners, he's really, really easy to throw fruit at with some of the singularity stuff, particularly some of the life extension stuff. It is a bit of a trope. I totally get it. But I was reading something the other day and I was like, you know what? Like, honestly, given, I mean, first off, he was a musician. He was a musician, right? Like he got his start uh, working on music stuff, which immediately warms my heart. Um but a lot of the he's 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 a he's a misunderstood uh, human being. He's a, he's he's a very smart person. Um, but the, that but but beyond that, like the uh, uh, but beyond that, you know, the the real challenge with some of this ML stuff, I think, is in a sense kind of like the idea of the killer robot, like like dissolving this kind of like hundreds of years old kind of mythology kind of panic around some of these these tropes of, of automation needs to be dispelled not necessarily to kind of like pour cold water on everything and make it boring but more so to say actually the damage that this stuff could potentially do is far more mundane and could be far more wide-reaching than your killer robot fantasies you know what i mean like it, it's really a matter of like you know the economy kind of uh you know uh funneling into into a point you know and like yes. and and from where we're at right now it doesn't feel it doesn't feel that grave because you know but but we're establishing precedent every day and that is a that's a, a concern i don't necessarily lose sleep over but i dedicate time toward yeah i definitely it's it's really interesting because like the water boils very slowly like it's we all think eventually we're just gonna know when we see like these like killer robots and we'll just be like oh like that's uh that's the problem right there. But like, it's much more pernicious and kind of like slow moving than that. Like the, the biggest thing that I think we we're all missing is like the, we, we often forget that like, we are just kind of, we've been inserted at like a point in history, like after like a whole bunch of other, like 6,000 plus whatever years of like stuff has happened. And like that, like then there's going to hopefully be like another like 6,000 years of stuff happening or whatever afterwards. Um, and like the, the, the sort of like, you know, pace at which we, we sort of expect things to move within our, our like lives is very different from that. And like, you know, even if we don't see something just in front of us, we have to be like aware that it could happen. Like, I think the, the Kurzweil point is kind of related to that, like 
you know, he seems to a lot of people kind of crazy because he's like, oh, like this is like going to happen. And sometimes he makes pretty bold predictions. He's like, this is going to happen in like 10 years and we all got to be ready. But like, I think, you know, the general concept is not really that unbelievable and like it needs to be kind of thought about in in kind of a, a like philosophical and then also like practical context. And the sooner we can do that, right. Like the better, cause whatever it's like, you know, it's almost like whatever uh, point we're at when like that music stops is like, that's like where we're going to sit. And like, that's kind of, you know, like we don't know when that's going to happen. So we should just have like kind of our, our, you know, everything together, like before we get to that point is kind of, I think, you know, the, the best way to interpret, um, his sort of like his, his warnings or, or thoughts about that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, I mean, this is also the, the kind of the frustrated solo punk podcast, but yeah, but it's also, you know, before the music has stopped playing, it's also kind of an opportunity to put forward a, a better vision and to pilot it, you know, and that's one thing I think to give, to give you all like uh, the world of credit for, for this project um, and many other projects in the space that, that to me is the most spiriting thing is it's not necessarily, you know, this is, for better and worse in different circumstances, this is a community of people building stuff and piloting stuff and doing stuff, you know, in the face, in the face of, in the face of real challenges. Cause I think, you know, that on, on the side of the ML stuff, there's also a very, there's a very verdant and uh, abundant uh, vision that could also be pushed forward uh, through, uh, 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 through those tools. Um, uh, and, and yeah, now, now's the time to state, to state your case. Cause this stuff is developing really quickly. That being said, I'm going to cut this off because we've taken up a great deal, a great deal of your time. And uh, as if we haven't already explained maybe what the term might mean to you, um, uh, we do always ask the question uh, in, in the honor of the great solo punk Jay Springett, who, who initially uh, asked us to ask this question. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Scott, what does interdependence mean to you? Oh gosh. And we didn't even really, yeah, the, this whole solar punk movement is we, we can definitely spend a lot of time on that at some point. And I think that's um, <laughs> its own entire sort of, uh, that's a, being a huge inspiration. I mean, yeah, this, I don't know if you've seen like for a lot of our, our art and thinking around what we want to achieve, like just thinking about nice. what is the, what a world we want to, what, what do we want to end up doing in the world? What does our world eventually look like? I think that's one of the, guiding principles for us is this sort of solar punk future. But um, to, yeah, answer the, I mean, aside from like kind of interdependence being about like open modular shared code, I also think it's kind of about like our shared commons and like the fact that we have this sort of like shared sense of purpose together. It's like, you know, we are, we are all at the center. There's no like kind of old, like overarching central point. Um, there's no like institution. Um, it's like, all uh all people uh like trying to do their best um to like work together and i think that's like a really powerful point um village actually talks a little bit about this too in the context of like um like a kind of tree um as an analogy or like just as an example of like the way people use the commons um mm-hmm. and i think it's a really great point um and i actually like i knew this question was coming so i wanted to like kind of read like that, like one little bit from, from Illich, which hey, is just like, you came prepared. Awesome. <laughs> just uh, a really, I, you know, I, I think this is kind of uh, related to the fact that we all draw from things that were before us were not, you know, in a vacuum. And I think that's really important. Um, but he says a typical tree on the commons of a village has by custom, very different uses for different people. 
The widows may take the dry branches for burning. The children may collect the twigs. The pastor may get the flowers when it flowers. And the nuts are from it assigned to the village poor. And the shadow may be for the shepherds who come through, uh, except on Sundays when the council is held in the shadow of the tree. And it's actually from a really interesting piece um, called, which, which a lot of these themes go throughout his pieces, but called Hair in the History of the City, where he mm. kind of compares, um, you know, literal, like literal hair and like the city is like kind of a statement about the fact that we see ourselves separated from, um, you know, by our hair or by like our, our, you know, literal skin, like from the world around us. Um, but like that there's no real substantial boundary. So like that to me, um, which may be more philosophical than the, the answer you're looking for is like kind of an important piece. Beautiful. Very beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm staggered by how well prepared you came. I agree with all of the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> gonna give david rudnick a run for his money yeah exactly <laughs> I'm, I'm pure game david with the with the citations um wonderful well scott it's been it's been so lovely um i hope that we can have you on in future i have no doubt there'll be plenty to discuss we can do the solar punk the solar punk round table um uh, uh at some point at some point in future and um Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, best of luck with the rest of the year. I hope you have a, a really nice uh, uh, winter and we'll see each other online in and the next few days. We will also be following all of the projects that will be funded. And I'm really excited about you all moving beyond software. So I'm excited to see what those projects are going to be. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Thank you so much. Super excited. Just like this was great and hope to talk to you both soon. It'll happen. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Scott. Bye. Bye. Bye.